Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Andrea Long Chu for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is November 2nd, 2018, and this has been recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hi. Hi. How are you today? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Uh, I guess just uh, start off and um, tell me a little bit about the, like, what kind of work you do these days and what you're up to and how you spend your time. Yeah, so I, um, I'm a graduate student at NYU, um, a doctoral student. Um, I mostly try to avoid doing anything that has to do with the institution um, <laughs> as much as I possibly can. Um, and I, uh, am a writer these days, um, so I'm doing a lot of, uh, freelance writing and, um, uh, working on a book right now for Verso, um, and then I'm probably gonna try and sell another book in January. So a lot of my, my life is consumed with, uh, writing and, and then, most of the time I spend writing is actually spent on Twitter being an asshole. Um, so that's sort of how I spend my days. What do you write about? <laughs> I write about, um, broadly speaking, I think I write about uh, sort of gender, sexuality, feminism. Um, I've written a number of things about, um, from a sort of personal perspective, about being a trans woman. Um, that was... Uh, this uh, essay uh, called On Liking Women uh, that was published in N Plus One earlier this year, like January 2018. Um, and that, I think, got a lot of... Ha has, has gotten and continues to get a lot of... Um, uh, uh, has sparked a number of conversations. Um, and I write about also, like... I mean, I also think, I, I just do kind of like, you know, I've written some book reviews. Um, the book I'm working on right now, uh, Collect, um, is called Females, A Concern. It collects, uh, I'm like having trouble describing it because it's like such a mess. <laughs> the manuscript is such a mess right now. But it's like, it's uh, broadly on, on uh, femaleness as political suicide. Um, it's a sort of pessimist vision of um, femaleness. I don't even know if it's feminist at this point, and I'm not sure I, I want it to be. But um, And it is, is rooted in um, Solanus, Valerie Solanus, um, who is a, a, a very important to me. Um, yeah. And what sorts of things are you an asshole about? <laughs> I'm an asshole about all kinds of things on Twitter, Michelle. <laughs> oh, I'm just, I mean, like, I, I mean, I'm, I love Twitter. I really love Twitter. And I, it, um, I, I mean, I'm an asshole about pop culture stuff. I tweet mean things about people I don't like in the public sphere. Um, and generally, I'm interested in performing a kind of, like, not-put-togetherness or, or a kind of, um, uh, 
I don't know. I like kind of being dumb and sloppy on Twitter. Um, and I think it's not like a political practice or something, but I think, um, I, it's, it's interesting to me as a woman and as a trans woman to be like a dumb shit on Twitter because, um, because there is a lot of kind of respectability that undergirds a lot of trans discourse, even like the same discourses, I think that would call respectability politics a bad thing. There's a, a sense of, of like dignity or, um, or a sincerity that, uh, that, that can run in those, in those, um, ways of thinking. And I like, um, I like saying things that I feel like a lot of us know, but no one wants to actually talk about because they're uncomfortable. So that's the kind of dicking around I do on Twitter. And I, and I tweet very mean things about Jill Soloway. Who is Jill Soloway? Oh, Jill Soloway, the, the uh, creator of Transparent and I Love Dick, the uh, Amazon original series. Um, no, Jill Soloway is just a... Just, just awful. <laughs> well, um, let's loop back around after hearing a bit about your life to your intellectual concerns and cultural concerns. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, where did you? Where were you born? And where did you grow up? I was born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. My father was finishing his residency at UNC, um, and my mother was at the time was in a graduate program at. Uh, also at UNC. So I was born in Chapel Hill and we were there for a couple of years. And then we moved to Asheville, North Carolina, um, in the mountains. And, um, and I was there for all of, uh, for all of primary school. Um, and so Asheville is like, I mean, it's a small city. Um, it's, it's, it's very like cool now. Like I think, you know, if you like live in Brooklyn, you like might want to, you know, go visit Asheville because it's a, you know, it's, it's very sort of dikey and artisanal and you can walk down the street like downtown and there's, you know, you have your pick of like where you would like to buy your crystals. Um, there's incense kind of wafting through the streets. It's a very hippy dippy kind of place. Um, and, uh, but I don't think I was raised around that. <laughs> I mean, it was like peripherally there, but, um, but my family is, um, I was raised pretty Christian and I was sent to a, a small, um, Christian school, which by the time I graduated, um, had 90 people in the high school. It was very small. Um, and so that was like, I, I don't know. When I think of my childhood, it's largely in terms of that. I, I, I don't think that we were like, I, I, I don't know. I, I always hesitate to use devout because I never know how to qualify religious belief, but, um, it was less about like a strong feeling and more about like a strong set of a clearly defined set of like things that one does. So like, you know, I had to go to church. 
Um, and I was, you know, went to like Christian summer camp and, um, there were not uncommonly Christian aspects to like sports that I was doing. It was, um, it was pretty saturated. Um, but yeah, so I, so North Carolina, um, beautiful. I miss the mountains, um, especially in the fall, which it is right now. Um, and I haven't been back. I, ha- I mean, I've been, I've been in the state of North Carolina, but I haven't been back to Asheville and, um, gosh, I don't know, uh, several years at this point. Um, I don't know when I'd be going back soon. How did you, um, feel about Christianity growing up? And what was your relationship with it like? It was, it was like fine. I wasn't, I, I, I mean, I was, I was a very like good kid. Like I was, um, I'm like, well, I'm not actually using air quotes, but I'm talking as if I'm using, I was like a very goody two shoes kind of rule following. Um, and I, uh, So I, I, I sort of, I think I was a good Christian kid. It was never, again, it was never like a strong sense of religious conviction. Um, and like church was boring, but like, I don't know who doesn't think church is boring. Um, also because like the, the church, <laughs> the church where my, my parents took us was this like very, this Presbyterian, like the conservative uh, Presbyterian, um, church and the, the pastor was like, was just like a, just an old, like, just like an exegete. I mean, he was like a, a youngish guy. Um, but he just like, he reveled in like doing the most boring books of the Bible because like it was, I mean, it's, it was sort of classical hermeneutics, right? Which is that like the reason that you can read the Bible is because you know, you already know what it's going to mean, which is that Jesus Christ is your Lord and savior and died for your sins. And so like the interpretive work of getting from like some random ass passage in like Ezra where they're like, I don't know. It's some like, it's about like them rebuilding a wall or something. I don't know. Um, (laughs) He would, he would always say, we're going to read, you know, it's like this, these verses, he would pick a book and it was like, it really was, it was like, occasionally we did something interesting. At some point in my childhood, we did like Mark and it was like such a relief to have like a gospel because that like really cool stuff happens in the gospels. But it was like Ezra and, 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 uh, like I don't know, Micah, and then, like, one of the, like, lesser Pauline epistles, and it was just, like, not, <laughs> but he he just loved being, and I'm gonna, you know, this is what's gonna happen in the passage, and... Sorry to bother, just wanted to say hey. <laughs> hey, I, we're in an interview, I'm afraid. Oh. I, I can try to come find you after. Yeah, He, he loved being able to say, this is what's going to happen in the passage. And at the end, I'm going to show you how it's about Jesus, basically. <laughs> like, he just loved the sort of, there was something a little tongue-in-cheek about it, but it was so incredibly boring. Um, but I, I don't think, I mean, I didn't, I didn't question it. 
it was just sort of like what my life was. Like I wasn't, um, it never occurred to, I, I don't know. It, it, it seemed obvious that anything that wasn't Christianity was just wrong because that's what I had been told and that's what made sense. And then later, um, in like, uh, like probably high school, um, it became my first sort of encounters with philosophy. So like, like I, like theology, I think is generally interesting. And, um, and so that was like all of my, you know, I would go on to do sort of philosophy in like a, a, a undergraduate or a graduate setting, but, um, but it was my first encounter with like systematic, rigorous systematic thinking. Um, and that was, so I appreciate that about it still. Um, and continue to find, I mean, because when I was really bored in church, um, we had like the Trinity hymnal, those like red hymnals with the little sort of triangular Trinity symbol on them. And, and you got, you have all of those hymns. And then in the back, there was like the, you know, a couple of, um, creeds, like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles Creed, um, the, and then like the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and also the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, and that was interesting. It was like reading the fine print on like doctrinal fine print. And so when, when, you know, whatever the pastor is going on about like fucking Ezra, I am, um, was just like, you know, reading about like justification and sanctification and just like trying to eke some kind of intellectual pleasure out of the back of that book. <laughs> um, but it definitely, I mean, it definitely fucked me up. Um, Christianity did, uh, especially I think in terms of how I thought about, um, sex. Um, for years I couldn't have an orgasm without like crushing guilt afterwards. It was just like, I couldn't, which I don't know, when you're a horny teenager is not a good combination because like you're still going to masturbate. And so it was like, I, yeah, I felt an enormous amount of shame about that. Um, and shame about sort of sexuality in general. Um, and that took a long time to work through um, coming out, which sort of happened in college. Um, yeah. And what was your relationship with your parents like growing up? Um, it was uh, good. I was a goody two shoes and I, w I was closer to my mother. Um, at some point in middle school, again, because this was this tiny Christian school. So at some point in middle school, I got bumped up in math. Um, and my mother ended up teaching me like it was somehow arranged at the school that my mother was going to teach me. It was like, you know, whatever I was doing eighth grade math in sixth grade or something. And so, um, so I had, you know, so my mom tutored me for math for like, I don't know, for basically for most of middle school and high school. Um, and so there was like a shared 
I had like a shared kind of intellectual connection with her. I mean, intellectual is not the right word, but a shared um, uh, mode of thinking. Um, and I think I tend to take after her in a lot of things. Um, Was your mother becoming an academic during that time? No, she was at the time, um, she was a stay-at-home mom for more or less since I was born. And then this eventually would turn into, like, after she, well, I think actually at some point near the end of high school for me, she started teaching at the high school part-time. I think a couple of years, maybe she was full-time. So she sort of ended up going back to work as a result or sort of via having started tutoring me. Um, but no, her, her, her graduate work was in um, public health, I think. I think she has a master's in public health. Um, but, uh, and my father is a pediatrician. Um, so I have a, so I'm also like very good in terms of like my, like I get my flu shots and I am vaccinated for like, you know, never going to get cervical cancer. Um, and, uh, but he was, you know, he, he was, he was, uh, worked a lot and, you know, just wasn't as close to him, but he's, I mean, he's like a very mild person. Um, so there was never anything like intimidating, I think, but, um, but I was definitely closer to my mom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was, um, did you, what did you do for fun when you were a teenager? I was a very, um, I was very, very shy. I was really painfully shy and really socially awkward. And, um, and at some point, you know, I mean, and that started more or less like when that start, you know, it was like a puberty thing. And, um, I kept to myself a lot. I had like a, one or two friends in middle school, I think, and one or two friends in high school. But I, I, I mostly, um, I mean, I read a lot as a kid. I read a lot of, like, science fiction. Um, Isaac Asimov, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, the Ender's Game guy. Orson Scott, Scott Card. Um who of course is like a conservative weirdo, but right, what <laughs> wrote great books, <laughs> um, uh, and fantasy to like uh, 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 Lloyd Alexander, a lot of Lloyd Alexander, like the uh, the Perdane Chronicles, and um, so I read a lot of fiction, an enormous amount of fiction, and. Uh, to, to such an extent, <laughs> to such an extent that I developed this habit. So I developed like a, like a, a diet soda addiction, very like, I don't know, in middle school that like still exists today, but we had, it was like cans 
And I think at first it was like Fresca. It's like, which is not a good soda, <laughs> but it was, but so I would, I just like had to have something, but I would be reading like these, you know, like a thick paperback that you can hold open with one hand. And I would be, um, I would be reading, holding it, holding the book in my right hand. And with my left hand, I would take a sip of the soda and I would still try and be looking at the page. And so I would sip like the can of soda out of the left side of my mouth. Um, like, like askew and, and like, that's how I drink soda. Like I can't, I can't, I can't drink soda like head on now, like any, or just any kind of can or something. It like, it always goes to one side (laughs) as a result. So I, I, so I read an enormous amount. Um, and I, I mean, I played video games, um, was a fan of video games, continued to be a fan of video games. And, uh, I did sports when I was younger. I did soccer when I was younger and was, uh, good at it for a period of time. And then at some point it became about sort of like, it became about like proving your, I don't know, it became like a sort of a, a kind of dick slapping contest at some point in middle school or high school. And then it was, then it was really horrible and I got out. Um, I spent, at some point in high school, began a, uh, a project on my own. Uh, which was just a list of words. I was really bored in my literature class. Um, it was this really, the school famously had one very good literature teacher and one very bad literature teacher. Um, and this was the very bad literature teacher and I just couldn't stand how boring the class was. And so I think we were reading the Scarlet Letter as you do in high school. And I just started writing down interesting words that I didn't really know that Hawthorne was using. So like prolix, for some reason, I remember encountering the word prolix for the first time. And so I started this list and it was like manually, I had like a, I had a, a, a notebook. And so it could, it like looked like I was taking notes, which was great. And, um, and then at some point I transcribed the notebook to, uh, to like a word document on the computer and, um, kept this like lexicon of weird words, um, unusual words, words with unusual meanings, big words. Um, and it was called uh, balderdash and it ended up there were like, and it was very like, you know, I was very assiduous about, you know, uh, it would have the noun and it would ha- it, like, it would have, it would have the part of speech and it would have, um, you know, different definitions broken up and, and synonyms. And there was like, it was a whole, there was a whole method to how I would input a word. Um, and, and I would just spend like an entire day working on that. Um, you were a nerd. 
I was a nerd. I was a nerd. I was a big nerd. Um, and that was like, that was a, a large part of like my, both my social identity and my conception of myself was that I was a nerd. Um, or a, a geek. I think I preferred the word geek. Um, I think that was the first line of my, of my common app essay actually was, I think I am a geek. Um, I think the, the semantic, uh, the semantic distinction being that like a nerd could be socially awkward, but not intelligent. Um, and the intelligence was very important to me. Um, it was, it was always like a sort of two-sided thing. I got, you know, applauded when I did well in school, and then I got told by my parents that um, arrogance was my greatest sin, was like my, the biggest temptation, that was how Satan was going to get me, was through my arrogance. So I was always sort of ping-ponging between... They sought for their coming. <laughs> 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 yes, they did. They did. At some point, I at some point, um, at some point, I I I turned around and gave Satan a big hug. <laughs> so, um, anything else you want to tell us about your pre-college years? Um, I was. Let's see. Um, Gender-wise, I think. I mean, like, I don't know, I don't have, like, a sort of Jan Morris kind of, like, whatever I knew since I was three kind of thing. Um, it would be nice to, like, I wish I did, but I don't. Um, if I look back now and reinterpret, which, like, who knows how true that is, but if I look back now, I have a strong sense of, uh... I mean, being smart, I don't know, being smart as a, as a teenage boy in like sort of rural-ish North Carolina at this little Christian school was like, I don't know, being a nerdy boy is like, is a kind of alternative gender identity, at least as, as when you've got a very limited vocabulary with which to think about. Um, and so I think that was like a way of sort of sideways disidentification with masculinity. But I also just, I mean, I loved being around girls. Um, and I, uh, I got to, I mean, I've, I've written about this, but I, I, um, I was briefly the, the, the scorekeeper for like the junior varsity and varsity girls volleyball team. And it was like an amazing semester of my life. Um, because I just got to like hang out with, I got to like be one of the girls, um, without that being like, there wasn't, I don't think it was, there was no gender anxiety for anyone. Like it wasn't actually a question of me like invading the girl's space or something like that. I, I was just like along and it was because like I needed a PE credit and I wasn't doing sports. So it was already like, there was built into it kind of a referendum on my gender failure. Um, and that was amazing. Um, and I developed very early on in probably middle school, a sense of like, uh, the, the, 
girls sleepover as like this sort of I- ideal form of sociality to which I would never have access. Um, just like the best thing I could imagine doing is whatever happened at those sleepovers. Um, I also, and the, the, the big thing I think I've left out about my childhood is that I started doing theater, um, in eighth grade. I was, my first role was the, uh, the major general in a high school production of the Pirates of Penzance, um, which I had grown up knowing because my parents have like, you know, in good middle brow fashion are like, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan fans. And, uh, and then there were a number of things, you know, then I did, there were like Shakespeare and there were musicals and, um, and theater was, I mean, I'm sure that there were kids who thought I was gay. Um, I know my parents, I mean, I suspect that my parents wondered if I was gay. Um, I wondered, but not really because, like, I, I wondered in the sense that, like, it, that, Im- that impulse to say, oh, I wonder, I wonder if Andy is gay. Um, I understood the impulse. Like, I, I, I sympathized with the people who wondered this, but, like, I had no attraction to men, um, of course, like, spoiler alert, I was gay, but, um, but I, I mean, you know, like, I, I, the theater is, is maybe especially at that age, actually, where it's like, before it becomes about, like, I don't know, like, craft and, like, you know, people being very serious about acting, um, there's like the, there's a lot of loosening of gender expectations in the theater. Um, you get to touch people a lot, um, in ways that you don't, uh, on other occasions. Um, at some point in high school, I developed the line, um, and it was sort of apropos of theater because at one point I was trying to set it to music because I, I played the piano. I took piano lessons since I was from like six to 16. And I wrote a couple of, well, I wrote a short musical or much of a short musical in high school in, in like a theater group that I was in. Um, but at one point I was trying to set to music the line. It would have been sort of the punchline of the chorus. Um, I'm gay, but I don't like guys. Um, this seemed to me like a funny song that a character could sing in a musical. Um, I, I still think it would be a funny song for a character to sing in a musical. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, theater was a, theater was a big part of my life. Wonderful. And, uh, where did you go to college? And what was that one? I went to Duke, um, in Durham, so it was, you know, so right next to where I had been born, in Chapel Hill, it was, like, far enough from my parents that they couldn't just show up, but they could come if I was, like, for instance, in a play, which I was many times, um, 
I was a theater major for three years um, and then got extremely disillusioned with theater um, because theater had given me a window into... Like, I started reading sort of, like, avant-garde stuff from the 70s, 60s and 70s, um, describing, you know, like, what art could do. And it was very clear to me that whatever the theater I was doing was not doing that. Which, of course, like, now I'm like, oh, well, that's because, like, the people writing those manifestos in the 60s and 70s were, like, wrong. (laughs) But, um... But so I, I, I was I was briefly sort of transfixed by the 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 potential of like an avant-garde kind of artistic practice um, that coincided with with some political radicalization. I um, especially around feminism, um, you know, the the one of the waves of the. Uh, campus anti-sexual assault um sort of movement was was going on at the time and so there were lots of you know people said rape culture a lot and um and i and and you know and the frats would do terrible things and then there would be like discussions about it on campus and in the student newspaper and i developed a, uh, an obsession with, there were like a couple of student columnists that, who could rely, who could be relied upon to write trash, um, or really offensive things, um, and, and so I, I like appointed myself like the, the, um, the champion of the comments section on the student newspaper, which felt very important at the time. Um, and I was, but it was like, it was, it was partly about responding and partly about, um, uh, just getting in like really good insults. Um, and it was like a writing exercise and I would spend like, I would spend like an hour writing the, you know, I would be like late to class or I would like not do my reading. Cause I was like, um, crafting, like, the best burns I could for the, you know, some, whatever, some 19-year-old dipshit who wrote a column about how, like, the wage gap is a good thing or something, you know, just like, um, and I, uh, I have been, those have been, those comments have been brought up to me, like, I've, I, people do occasionally from college are like, oh yeah, I really, li- I really <laughs> looked forward to your comments on the <laughs> student website. Um, that's I, I say this because I think that was like very much a, 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 a sign of things to come in terms of my, my life and my public persona. Clearly. Um, uh, I, uh, I shacked up very quickly. I, like, got a girlfriend, and we, like, lived together basically for all of college. Um, 
and I mostly socialized. Like, I was very good at, I think I'm good at being friends with people when there's like a, like I was good at being, having a good time with other people who were like in the plays that I was in or something like that. Um, but I never just wanted to like go to a party. It just sounded like the worst thing. So I mostly socialized via her. She would have friends and I would sort of tag along. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I had, I had, I had, again, a couple maybe closer friends in, in college, but, um, certainly better friends than I had had in high school, though now when I look, I think, oh, well, I don't know, like, how well I actually knew people, or, um, or, I don't know, there always seemed to be, like, a, a kind of intimacy that I would like in a friendship that I hadn't been able to achieve in high school and that I still didn't feel like I was really achieving in college. Um, yeah, and lots of theater, lots of theater, so much. Like, like I think my, I think my first year I did three plays maybe like three plays in a reading I don't know like I did a I did a lot of stuff um I was in the Laramie project <laughs> um I did a a, a a I did do a professional show um one of the professors in the theater department uh Jeff Storer uh at the time I think he and his partner have just closed or sold this theater. I don't actually know what the status is right now, but, um, Jeff and his partner, Ed, um, this like adorable sort of biker bear for biker bear situation. Um, and like Jeff directed the shows and Ed did all the books and this theater was called Man Bites Dog in Durham. And, um, he had directed me in the Laramie Project and he, uh, he asked me if I wanted to, um, be in this show. Uh, the, the Man Bites, the whole thing at Man Bites was that they only did world and regional premieres. So, like, they never did things that were in existence already. It was always new stuff. Um, and yeah, I played, um, it was this small play. It was called Edith Can Shoot Things and Hit Them. I forget what the forget what the playwright's name was. Um, and I played a, a gay boy um, with another, with a friend of mine who had also been in the Laramie Project. Um, so like made out with like um, a person who was at the time uh, another boy. Um, we are now both trans. Um, they're uh, uh, non-binary. Uh, so that was interesting. Um, and what else about college? I don't know. I, I, um, 
at some point I discovered the thing we call theory in the humanities. I discovered like, uh, you know, French philosophy and, um, and cultural studies and, uh, and dove into that at the last moment, <clears throat> at the very last moment in college. Um, I changed my major. Um, I took all these classes. I was able to like fit it in, um, wrote a senior thesis in literature. Um, and that sort of, that's, that's, that sort of is what would end up propelling me into New York, um, was going to graduate school, a professor I had as a senior in college. Uh, who was teaching, I think, the intro to literature class, was like, do you want to, like, can you come see me after class? I was like, oh, fuck, like, I, I'm still a very good goody two-shoes, and so I was like, oh, no, like, did I do something wrong? This was um, Kate Hales and Catherine Hales, um, uh, author of uh, How We Became Post-Human, and, um, but she's just the sweetest woman, and was like, can you come to my office? And I came after class, and she was like, so you're going to graduate school, right? And I was like, oh, I don't know, because I hadn't really come up with any plan. It was like fall of my senior year. And she was like, you're going to graduate school. And so sort of told me where to apply and wrote one of my rec letters. And um, and that is what, uh, that's what led to my ending up at NYU. Uh, so a few, uh, few questions about Duke. What years were you there? I was there from... Uh, 2010 to 2014. What year was the big um, lacrosse? So the, la- the lacrosse scandal was yeah. right before it. I think it was like one or two years before mm-hmm. it. It was still, it still sort of hung over campus to some extent. Yeah, tell me about the, what you understood of the political landscape around campus sexual assault organizing and what was happening during those years that you were in relation to? It was really, um, uh, I mean, college is where, like, I first developed a sense of, like, you know, patriarchy or even misogyny. I don't think I would have, I don't think I, I don't know if I even would have given credence to that in high school. But maybe in high school what had happened was that I was like, I had figured out how to ally myself with women. And in college that sort of manifested in, in terms of a political consciousness raising. Um, I, like, it was, it was very, I think, party culture oriented. Like the way I remember thinking about it at the time was um that it was like uh it was about frats and it was about alcohol and it was about like a a culture in which like predatory boys lured um young women to these parties and took advantage of them um and then there would be these you know it would be like layered over so like there was a when I was there, there was some, I mean, there's like, you know, an infinite number of 
um, problematic frat theme parties or whatever. But when I was there, there was like this uh, uh, polka hotness scandal. The the some frat email about like a, a Thanksgiving themed party um, had included included. Uh, Recommend like a suggestion that women like. I, I don't even know how the word was used. I don't know if it was used to mean a kind of hotness. I don't know what part of speech it was, but it was. It was there was this outcry on campus about it. Um, I remember that being one of the first times I was really paying attention. I think to, um, to something like this. So there was you know it was it was always overlaid with. Um, with racialization or with, um, uh, like a critique of the wealth of these guys. Cause there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of rich assholes, um, who go to Duke. Um, and the frat culture is, is strong, at least was strong when I was there. And, um, and so I think socially, socially how you existed was like sort of in relation to that, like whether or not you participated in that, what you did instead of that. Um, and I, uh, and there were, again, there was like a, there was a, like a super, there was some kind of like racist party also again that was like involved guys in like sumo wrestler suits and something um that you know uh, resulted in protests on campus and and things in the newspaper and um uh And there was something else I was going to say about this, and I'm trying to remember. Um, oh, I don't know. Maybe it'll come to me later. It was very... Oh, right. Like, my... my I think it was, it was very... Um, It felt very sort of second wavy. It was very like objectification is bad, sexualization is bad. Um, uh, uh, very sort of fixated on sexual violence and rape. Um, kind of apocalyptic in tone. Um, and I had, I, I had like a phase. Um, Near the end of college, that was like my, I, I had like a sort of full McKinnon phase of like, um, just getting angry. I was just angry at everything all the time. Angry at, um, any depictions of sex, angry at, at, um, any text. I felt like I was, I don't know, I was like that kid in the class who was just like always like this is like I was I was you know pointing out how problematic everything was and I was there was like a lot of um 
a lot of like hostility and, and, um, and kind of righteousness that I developed at the time that I think has uh, uh, mellowed out to some extent, but, um, but it was, it was physically like I rem- it was, it was such a strong sensation of, of, um, the discomfort is too weak a word, um, of, of, uh, anger and, um, and like horror at how bad things were. Um, yeah. How was your sex? My sex, how was my sex? Like yeah. the sex I was having? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like uh, fine. It wasn't, um, I mean, like, I didn't, I didn't have sex until college. I, um, I don't know. I think it was very middling. Um, I mean, I certainly think of it now as middling for, like, it almost feels, like, unfair to evaluate it now. Um, But I was never good. I mean, what what sort of eventually became clear is that I was never a good top, and my girlfriend needed me to do that, and um, and anything that deviated from that was sort of like a put the relationship at risk, and so um, it was. Uh, So it was very, like, unimaginative sex. Um, And the political rage didn't spill over into self-hatred or... Well, I mean, I'm sure it did. Like, I I mean, it it was self-hatred. Like, because at the time, I mean, this was like, what? so what do you do when you're, like, a McKinnonite and a boy? Um, And I... I was I was the only male major in my women's <laughs> studies department at the time. Yeah. Right, and like yeah. I've been, I've been like I was like one of two boys in a women's studies class yeah. with Kathy Weeks uh, uh, in my senior year, and I was, uh, you know, and so I think there was this. I mean, I thought I was doing a good job I think in terms of like not making sex all about me or whatever it was but I I mean I had a lot of guilt about if I'm thinking about like shame it was I think I had less shame around heterosexual sex and much more shame around uh, pornography because I watched a lot of pornography from, you know, from middle school on, um, and got to college and was like, and it's still at, you know, beginning of college, I'm still like sort of in the process of sloughing off Christianity and was like, I'm going to stop. And then of course I didn't stop. Um, and that made no sense to me. Like I just couldn't, it was so, which is of course, like I think better for porn, like it's, you know, 
I don't know. If if porn were like totally acceptable, it would probably not be as exciting. Um, but I I totally would. Um, I had a great amount of shame about it because it felt so at odds with like these feminist principles that I was, um, that I was developing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it, I think it, I think it did manifest more there than, than in like the actual, like traditional intercourse I was having, um, to a certain extent, if we're, if we're limiting it to college, like at a certain point, um, at a certain point after college, it became, um, totally untenable, um, but not really for feminist reasons, um, I don't know when I discovered it, but, um, I think it was probably right after college, but at some point I, cause like I would have shame about being able to get off better in better with porn than with my girlfriend. Right. And I would, um, I think as you do and you watch a lot of porn as you start to you kind of go down these sort of rabbit holes um over time and so it was like there was this progression from like uh i don't know whatever um sort of run-of-the-mill mainstream pornography to um J.O.I. videos. Uh, I, this is so funny that I'm describing my porn habits to the New York Public Library. Um, uh, J.O.I. being jerk-off instructions, so, like, where, where, um, the, the woman is telling you what to do, um, like, breaking the fourth wall. Um, and that sort of went down a kind of humiliation track until I hit, um, what I wouldn't have even known to call this at the time, but until I hit sissy porn about which I have, uh, written some and which some of which will be in this, uh, Versa book actually, but, um, which involved lots of trans women. I mean, it's a forced feminization kind of porn involved trans women or people being imagined like cis women being imagined as trans women. Um, this certainly isn't our first interview that includes discussion of forced feminization. This is, a, is not. No, right, not of course. No, I mean, so this is like a thing, obviously. And um, and it was uh, very disturbing. Um, I mean, one, because like the language of... I mean, I've had people be very... I don't know. I've had academics be like, oh, that's really... Like, when I've given a paper on sissy porn, oh, like, that's really disturbing. I think, like, I think I really freaked, like, Saidiya Hartman out <laughs> um, at Columbia <laughs> talking about sissy porn. Because it's, like, it's so, you know, like, the languages of, like, brainwashing and enslavement and um, all kinds of forms of non-consent 
And um, it really, I mean, it, it's, it is like, it is a radical feminist worst nightmare, um, sissy porn is. And so, um, so at some point that started. Um, and like, this is during your McKinnon phase? This is, this is after now. I think okay. this is, I think that was probably the first year of grad school. So I went straight from college to grad school. I think it was probably that. It's possible that I found it before leaving college, but I'm not sure. Um, and the most I had ever done in college was, was paint my toenails. Um, at some point I painted my toenails using my girlfriend's, like with her permission, using my girlfriend's nail polish. And that was like sort of exciting. Um, and then I didn't do that for a little while. And then I started doing it again after college, but, um, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't manifesting in most places in my life. As far as I could tell, there was just this like, Like I would get in bed with my girlfriend, turn out the lights and go to sleep. And then I would go to the bathroom and look at sissy porn. Um, because once I found it, it was the only thing I could, like it just, if I tried looking at other things, I would inevitably end up at sissy porn or some variation on it, um, on Tumblr, you know, um, And that was like, I mean, it was sort of like, you know, the, 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 um, my porn addiction had all along been waiting for something like sissy porn. Um, in part because, um, I mean, partly because now if I'm like, if I'm reading in retrospect, it feels like the whole thing was about trying to access a kind of sexuality that wasn't about being a man, but also because sissy porn like directly thematizes, um, porn addiction, like the sissy porn addresses you as the viewer and says like, oh, you, you know, you sissy faggot, you're watching sissy porn, like you're this is like, you know, put stuff in your ass. Like it's, it's, it, the, it, it invites you to imagine, uh, invite is too gentle a word, it demands that you imagine your experience of porn as something that's turning you into a woman. Um, not just that you're looking at people being turned into a woman, but that the act of looking turns you into a woman. Um, and that went on for like two years. Like that was, that was a long time. It wasn't like a couple of weeks in, I was like, oh fuck, I gotta fix something. Like it just was, it just like sat there for a long time, um, which is amazing in retrospect. But by the time that, had, like once that was really sort of locked in, then like heterosexual sex was just, it was just like not interesting. Um, I could like do things to that were like about my partner's pleasure 
and I could like be into that, but I'm turn in in terms of myself, it was just like I just really didn't have any interest. Um, so that was, I mean, that was the first place I think. Um, the first sense I ever had that something was like truly up, capital U, up, um, was porn, um, which I don't, which I think is not uncommon and probably even more common than anyone knows. Because he said, it's not the first time you've talked about forced feminization. And I'm sure there are people who, who have been interviewed for this who didn't talk about forced feminization, but for whom that was important. Because it's a, it is like, I mean, you know, we're, we're just like gabbing about sissy porn. And that's because like I have like turned it into like part of the kind of thing that I talk about um, in my work a lot. Um, as a way of sort of like not uh, not even working through the shame, just like making the shame public, um, but I think it's I think it's horribly um, it can be can be can be terribly shameful, um, and even now I'm like oh gosh like. I, I'm getting bottom surgery in a, in a month, in less than four weeks from today, as of this recording. Um, and the other day I was like, oh, fuck, like, what porn am I going to look at after bottom surgery? Because, like, if the, the, if sissy porn were to persist afterward, it would be, like, even more shameful because like, my body would no longer match the, I don't know, it would just, like, prove how little a surgery had done. Um, like, why do I still want to look at chicks with dicks if I'm not one? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I can, I, you can talk, I can talk a lot about porn. So, as is clear from all the names you've dropped, Duke is quite a hotbed for theory. Could you uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about, as an undergrad, what excited you about theory and what sorts of things you, you were engaged in? Yeah, I, um... It's... I, I think when you... I mean, I, I had, I had been very, uh, I got very upset with theater. I got very upset with art because it didn't seem to be able to live up to what it said. And because I was more interested in theories of artistic practice than actually doing the art, which was often not good. And so at some point I just got I don't know how I knew to get, like, I don't know what inspired me to do this or like how I landed on this, but I bought like Anti-Oedipus, Dillis and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus. I bought 
the order of things. Um, so Foucault, I, and like Marshall McLuhan, and I don't, I don't remember what else. And just like read, I remember reading the first pages of Anti Oedipus on Christmas Eve in like 2000 and Mm, 2012 maybe and was like oh shit this is amazing which of course like I don't think I actually understood it at all but I felt like I understood it and, and it felt exciting to me and it's like it's a very weird crazy book and um and appealed to I think the sort of like lingering avant-garde in me but also felt like it was saying some incredible things about the world and so that was sort of my gateway drug and then I just like devoured stuff for the next kind of year. Um, theory is very, like it's very, it was very exciting to, I don't know, I think, I think w when it happens, you suddenly feel like you can, you like control the weather or something like it, the, it there, I think there's a, a massive sense of, um, of, power and, um, and, and, uh, and, and control that comes from being able to, like, describe the whole world in a single sentence, you know, like, these, these sweeping statements about capitalism or about, um, the heterosexual matrix or about, um, about, uh, 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 God, I don't even know, um, about being, like, it, it just, it was so exciting to me, um, I just felt like I could do anything, um, I, I don't, like, I, I don't, um, I've lost that feeling now, of course, I'm very, I'm very jaded about, um, about, academic practice in general um but at the time it was so it was heady um and really really exciting and um and so I took class I mean I was I took you know that class with Kate Hales and I took a class with Ray Chow and Kathy Weeks um I never quite and I think it was more because of a schedule thing I never, like, you know, I never took a class with Jameson. Though, like, I I would see him sort of in the literature building, Frederick Jameson, sort of puttering around in his orthopedic uh, sneakers. Um, and I never took class with Michael Hart, um, but sort of knew him a little bit. Um, but it was a very exciting place. I remember going to the Feminist Theory Workshop, like my last semester, because I think that's in the spring, um, went to the feminist theory workshop and it was, um, I don't know who all it was, but it was, it was so exciting that like, oh, there's actually this thing that I've been trying to do, which I, I had been trying to articulate, I think from the beginning of college, which was like, how can I think systematically about, um, about power, but also about, like, you know, cultural objects. 
um, I was like, oh, there's actually a whole department for this. There's like a whole world that where this is possible. Um, and I was really, I was like, I was totally smitten. I took a whole phenomenology class. Like it was just phenomenology with Mark Hansen. We read like, you know, like early Husserl and middle Husserl and later Husserl. And we read like Eugen Fink, not even just like, you know, we read Heidegger and, and Merleau-Ponty and, um, but like some real, like off the beaten path people, um, also. And that was, uh, that was enormously influential. I'm, um, that was probably, in, in retrospect, the most important class I ever took in, um, in college because, uh, that, that and Kathy Weeks's class, Money, Sex, Power, um, feminist theory class, but, um, cause I'm a, I am like a card carrying phenomenologist now. And that's like, I still, I mean, it's still the thing that is undergirding a lot of just like my public writing too. I, I'm not like constantly, um, you know, expostulating about Heidegger, but, um, but it does, has given me a, a set of assumptions about, especially how we talk about feelings, um, that stay, that are still very, very, um, close to me. For people that might know your public writing, but not phenomenology, could you tell us a little <laughs> bit about the connection? Um, so like, so phenomenology very basically is, a, is like a, a, a study of experience. Um, the, uh, phenomenology is about trying to study like consciousness without reference to like some sort of objective world. So like the classic example is like, um, if I, this is like Descartes, it's like, if I'm, if I'm asleep and like, I see a, a, a flame and I feel the heat, um, it like might not be true that I am actually seeing those things and feeling those things, um, because I'm asleep. But as long as I'm feeling them, the feeling itself is true. Like the seeming, um, as Descartes calls it, the seeming, uh, can't be doubted. Um, and so that, that by itself, that like, whether or not there's something behind an appearance, the appearance is valid as appearance, um, is like the basic assumption of phenomenology. And so that means like, um, for instance, um, when we talk about like, I'm trying to like tie it to like a concrete thing. So like when we talk about me too, or like I've, I've written some about me too for N plus one. Um, uh, a phenomenological approach to sexual harassment in, involves thinking about like, um, something will happen. You're not quite sure what it is. Um, you turn it over in your head. Like, did he actually just do that? Did like, am I misunderstanding? Um, and there's a, um, there's a way that you can become sort of trapped with your 
feelings. Like when the thing that you're always worried about in sexual harassment is that it's all in your head. Um, and that is, that's actually like, I think partly constitutive of the kind of injury that it is to get harassed is that harassment never says like, Hey, I'm harassment. Um, it always is buried in like this, this kind of epistemological uncertainty, um, this uncertainty about like what you, um, what actually happened versus what like you're feeling. Um, and so that, I mean, that's, I'm just trying to give like an example of how I, of, of how phenomenology still kind of informs my thinking. Um, another would be, um, uh, another would be just that I don't like describing one feeling in terms of another feeling. So like, I'm very like pro self-loathing in a lot of my work. Um, uh, often, uh, not, not just this, but often, uh, my work about being trans, um, because there is like a kind of self-love or self-care discourses that like are, um, uh, are probably dominant in, in the way that trans people talk about themselves to cis people, but also talk about themselves to each other. Um, certainly online and in the public sphere. Um, and I would much prefer to think about self-loathing on its own terms instead of as, uh, some sort of deficit of self-esteem, right? It's not that I have low self-esteem. It's that I am self-loathing that feeling, whether or not like it can be described in terms of a relation to like an objective world. Like if everyone's like, no, you're pretty. No, you're fine. No, you know, you can, I, as a trans person, I'm constantly like, let me like sit you down with this picture of my face and show you like all the different details that are wrong about it. Right. Like I have a conviction, um, that underlies that self-loathing and I want to be able to, I see like my, so my task as a writer then would not be stop hating yourself, which is like the worst, I think the worst advice you could ever give anyone. Um, but more like, what does it actually feel like to hate myself? Like, can I describe the contours of that feeling, um, in a more or less sort of morally neutral way? Um, can I think about like, what does it feel like to be self-loathing? Um, how does it affect the way I go about the world? Um, how does it provide me like a, a kind of, like a, 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 a set of, of, uh, habits that can actually be, um, sustaining, maybe not feel good, but that can be like something I can return to and something that like helps me w like not kill myself. Um, so that's two examples. I'm very, I'm, 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 uh, very about feelings. When did you encounter Valerie Solanus? In college, I did a semester in New York. It was like an arts semester. I, this was when I got disillusioned with theater because part of the program was seeing a bunch of 
shows. It was like, you know, I think we saw one thing on Broadway and then a lot of it was like off Broadway stuff and maybe there were some museums and it was, um, but it was like the program was called like arts and media in New York. Um, and we saw some good stuff and some bad stuff, but, um, I got so fed up with, um, so fucking fed up with theater. And so I did this art project <laughs> as my, everyone had to do a project at, for the, in the program. And it had to be sort of vaguely art related. I mean, like, I don't know. There was a guy who like made his own perfume. He was like his, his family has a crest. Like he was real rich. Um, and, uh, you know, some people doing like, preparing a set of audition songs or, you know, it was sort of, it, it was a mixed bag of stuff. There was all kinds of stuff. And for me, I got this idea that I would get a piano. I do not know how I got this idea. I got a, 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 a stand-up piano um actually not a stand-up what's it called when it's lower oh i can't remember what the right term for that is but so like not a grand piano situation but not something super tall it was like um it was like maybe a, a yard high or something um and it was like a a, a daycare or community center in like jamaica queens I had found it on Craigslist. I like corresponded and was like, Hey, I want to like do an art project. Um, could I, I think it was like free. It was like, if you came and got it, can I have your piano? And she was like excited. Cause it was like, Oh, it's going to go to like a kind of like a cool artistic cause. Um, and so I, I schlepped out to Jamaica. Um, I, Gosh, it was a whole thing. Um, I'm forgetting now how it worked. I think maybe someone else picked up the U-Haul, maybe. But, like, we got, at any rate, got in the U-Haul, drove, like, a, a, a U-Haul van on the Brooklyn Queens Expressway with, like, a loose piano in the back to my, the dorm room, which was in um, downtown, uh, Brooklyn was like on, on, uh, like Clark street, um, in Brooklyn and then got the fucking thing into my dorm room. It was an extremely painful process because pianos are crazy heavy. So we like lugged this thing, like with the help of some friends, got it into the elevator, which it like barely fit in the elevator, got it into the elevator, got it up to the, like whatever floor, like third or fourth floor. And, um, and got it into the room. And it, this was a room I shared with two other people, one of whom was the person that I had made out with in that play, Jacob. Um, so at the time, two gay boys and me. Um, 
And it was like, you know, we all had like lofted beds and there was like some room under the bed. I already had a keyboard that was my own keyboard in the room. It was not that large. It was like the whole room was like, I don't know. I'm terrible at estimating spaces. It wasn't, it was not huge. Um, and it just sat in the middle of the room. And like somehow they were okay with this. I don't like, or maybe they weren't okay with it, but like didn't know how to say no. But it was like, it was just in the middle of the room. And so what I did is, so like I did a bunch of stuff physically to the piano. I fucked with it in a lot of, so I like, I, I like pasted like pieces of newspaper and like old record cases and brochures just like sort of uh paper like awful that i found on the sides of it um i rigged one of the i like put some mirrors on it i carved into it i rigged one of the keys so that it would um, turn a light on when you pressed it. Like, somehow, because, you know, the way the hammers work, somehow I, 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 I got it so the light would turn on when you pressed it. Um, I, we found these, like, bits of, bits of mannequin on the street. Like, these, like, legs of a mannequin, um, from, like, the thigh down, and I, like, attached those to the bench. So I did a bunch of, like, kooky stuff to the piano and then I, I realized like I still have not there's no indication of how this is an answer to your question yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I can't wait to hear the segue and what I did with the keys was I carved the the name the full name of a writer into the top of the, into the, the white of the key. Um, and then I, um, well, actually, no, I think I did, I think I did white keys and black keys, actually. Um, I, I, I carved the name using, I don't even know what I was using to carve. It was maybe like a, like a screwdriver or something. Um, and then I, so if you've, I don't know if you've ever seen like a piano key, like outside of a piano, but there, um, there's like an inch thickness and like beneath like the, the, if it's like a white key beneath the white, there's like maybe an inch of like wood. It's like a sort of wood block. And then if you, then they don't, they're not straight. So like the, the part of the key that you see on the piano is straight. And then usually the, um, there's a, a kind of wood rod that goes out from the key that is like diagonal. So they're, they're sort of odd shapes. Um, and then I would write quotes it, using like a, like a normal gel pen and like very small wording. I would cover the, the wood of the key, the exposed wood of the key with quotes from, um, manifestos from the 60s and 70s um or like 
but not just manifest, like some were arts manifestos and some were like philosophy texts and some were, so like, I think there was probably, like there was a, I'm sure there was a Deleuze key, there was a Derrida key, um, there were like, there was a John Cage key and probably a George Brecht key and like a Yoko Ono key and, um, there were all of these different, and I did not every single key on the piano, but maybe like 60 out of 88 keys or something. It was most of them. It took an enormous amount of time. And served no purpose. And except that it was sort of incredible. Um, and one of the keys was Valerie Solanas, whom I had encountered, I think, in the process of looking for things to put on these keys, um, or whom I had encountered maybe via some other text that I had read. Um, and, uh, yeah, manifestos was the, it was all about manifestos. And so I read, I read, uh, the scum manifesto on like the, I don't know, one of those trains that goes above ground between Brooklyn and Manhattan. Um, I remember reading it, uh, maybe just on my phone. Um, cause you know, it's in, you can find it online extremely easily. Um, and just being like, what is this? Um, and it was so enticing that the, um, the severity of it. And it was like, you know, this is in the context of me just having read whatever, like the Futurist Manifesto, which Scum is not that different from, actually. I mean, I think I had a key both for Marinetti and for the woman whose name, of course, I can't remember because she was the woman. Um, there was like a, there was like a female futurist manifesto that was, that was done like a, a, a year or two later after Marinetti's, um, which is like a fascist text. Um, so not all of the manifestos were like, uh, quote unquote, good, but, but I mean, I don't know that I would have said that the Solanus one was good either. Like there is, there is something totally fascistic about the, about scum. I mean, it's arguably like kind of what makes scum great is that it has a, it's so extreme. Um, there's a catharsis to that extremism, I think, and a, uh, just like, thank you for finally saying the obvious thing which is that we should just kill all men. Like, it's just, it's so, it's so wonderful. It's such, like, such a beautiful, um, impossible statement. And, uh, so she was on, she was one of those keys on this piano. And I, I, uh, wrote a, uh, I wrote my own manifesto to go with it for the presentation at the end of the semester. Um, which was, I did using like all these weird fonts and, and sort of like 
a collage kind of uh, black and white pictures and like overlaid things. It was very messy and weird um, on Microsoft Word. And then I made a Prezi out. I like made that into a PDF and then I made a Prezi out of the PDF so that I could deliver the manifesto to the class while like sort of the camera was moving between these different places in the pages. Um, and then I left the piano in New York and went back to North Carolina and never saw the piano again. And I just like, I gave it to someone else who was living in the dorm. Um, he was like, Oh, it's so cool. So I, like, and I have no idea. We just, we got it to his room and then it was like, I have no idea what happened to it. I'm sure it just got thrown away at some point. Um, after I had done all that work, I saved a couple of keys. Um, I don't think that I have any of the keys anymore. I do have pictures of it. Um, I do still have some pictures of it. Yeah, so that... So I, so I encountered her at a moment in my life where I was obviously taking out a lot of buried aggression on a piano. <laughs> and um, was, like, sort of saying goodbye to art also. Um, because soon thereafter, I stopped doing theater, and I started doing theory. Um, but it was, it was a very vulnerable period in my life. Um, I was very angry all the time. And that's how I met Valerie Solanus. <laughs> Is the was the payoff everything that you were waiting for? It was ideal. <laughs> um, I think that's a pretty good story. It's a great. It's story. not just it got assigned it in a class. Yeah. So, Valerie Solanus. I mean, this is you've you've made a name partially by writing about her, and you know she's commonly read as uh, really quite extremely transphobic, and you. Um, what does it mean for you to be reading her? Like how, what do you, mm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the trans, like, I mean, so, I, you know, I've written about how I think the a kind of plastering of the accusation transphobia onto, uh, you know, late 60s, 70s, feminist writing is simplistic and is more about us trying to sort of litigate something now than it is about like, than it is like an accurate description of the way things were. But, um, you know, for me, it was like, uh, transition came out of a place of hating men. Like it really was born of like a, a, a strong misandrist. I don't even want to say position because that I think makes it sound like it was an intellectual thing. It was like literally like my roommates, like some boyfriend of my roommates was like trying to bond with me. And it just made me so unhappy. I just, I remember I remember texting someone, this is still like two years before I came out, but it was like, oh, I just can't stand having to like 
be a man for another man. Um, and there was nothing, like, I, I don't know, he was, like, a perfectly fine. He wasn't, like, actually, like, a terrible person, but it was, I just couldn't, um, it, it, it was so infuriating to have to do that, to have to put up with that. Um, so, so I think, like, you know, scum, for me, the, the kind of apocalyptic approach to, you know, I mean, the genocidal approach to men, like, feels like an obvious, almost like too obvious, like, allegory of what it felt like to transition, but by which I don't mean to, like, sort of inflate the, like, political stakes of transitioning. Like, I, I don't, I wasn't, like, I'm gonna, like, be a really good feminist and become a woman. Um, it was happening on, on a, it was not happening on, like, an intellectual level. Um, in fact, the opposite was true. I think, uh, you know, before, um, before transition, I never really considered transition. It was like, it was something that happened very, very quickly. Um, and I didn't really have a closeted phase. So when I finally figured it out, it was like, oh, this is very obvious. And I just started being a woman. Um, and it was like the summer, so I didn't really need to hide it. But I, I, um, I had felt that Like, the feminist thing to do as a man was to repress your own desires and, like, take up less space and, like, self-abnegate as much as possible. And so something like becoming a woman, I think, would have felt too... Uh, but it felt like man spreading my way into womanhood. It, like it, it felt like there was actually, there was feminist virtue in not work, like in, in, in trying to, uh, uh, sideline as much my own desire because I wouldn't, cause, cause I had learned that like my desire was, uh, highly suspect. Um, so I don't want to say it was like some big feminist move to become a woman, but, um, but Solanus, um, who, like, who recommends transition in the manifesto? I mean, like, partly, partly the, the, the transphobic thing is because she's getting lumped in in a sort of, um, in a, I think, a careless generalization. Um, but she literally does recommend that men biologically, chemically, psychologically become women. That's just like a part of it. Um, it's like one of several options that men have in the sort of post-revolutionary landscape for Solanus. You can like... Um, you can become a woman, you can kind of just like, or, or like a drag queen that's sort of like, sort of acceptable. Um, 
she finds drag queens to be like the most acceptable form of a man, um, drag queens and faggots. Um, or you can, uh, you can be strapped into a, like a, uh, 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 some sort of like Oculus, like virtual reality kind of situation where you're like seeing through the eyes of some like powerful woman and you just get to sort of like vicariously live her life through some sort of, you know, technological mediation. Um, or you can just like be put out to pasture, I think, and given drugs and you just kind of like graze like an old cow and then die. There's like, so there's, there's like several options. Um, and then she says, if men were really smart, they would figure out how to turn themselves into women. Um, so I don't think, uh, I mean, you know, was Valerie Solanus the person? Like, I have no idea. Um, Valerie Solanus, by all accounts, was like, not a nice person who did not like most people, uh, including most women. Um, and so like, you know, what Valerie thought of, of the, the, um, Obviously, I mean, she spent a lot of time around gender nonconforming people, for sure. Um, both in the context of doing sex work and in the context of, um, like, the downtown art scene um, in the in the late 60s. But, uh, but I always thought just, like, misandry, principled misandry is, like just the most natural political position I think that like I just can't I can't imagine finding anything else reasonable um so she's become very special to me in that way um as like a a a a forerunner in in like a, a misandrist project that I um Which is, would be one way to characterize my work. My work might be more misandrist than it is feminist, which is an interesting, uh, would be an interesting question. I mean, I'm sort of dragging myself by saying I may not, may not actually be a feminist at all times. Um, I'm, I'm like obsessed with feminism. I, I love feminism. I hate feminism, whatever. But, um, yeah. I, there's just something so, incandescently right about hating men. When, uh, when was it that you came to transition rapidly? So I, um, <laughs> rapid onset transition. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I broke up with my girlfriend or, or we broke up. She, um, uh, up with someone else and it was like uncomfortable but it was it was like also like the relationship was very over at that point we were not on the same page sexually it was not like it was not actually a real um pain there was like i mean it was there were there were the pains of just like disentangling your life from someone that you're entangled with but um but we both knew it was for the best and it was really fine and like totally amicable um, and what happened was, so like, I found out, 
And it, it hadn't, like, it was, I, I knew right when it had it had, had happened, because she didn't come home. And she was, at the time, staying with me in, like, my tiny, um, tiny apartment in the East Village. And, um, so we decided to break up. Um, Were you at NYU at the time? I was at NYU at the time. Mm-hmm. I was, this was, this was in um in summer of 2016 so it was right before i had just completed two years of uh of graduate school um and so there was like sort of a day of mourning and i the one of the first things i started thinking about after we broke up was well i'm gonna I want to try some things that I have been thinking about trying. Um, I had been painting my nails for at least a year by that point, And that had kind of gotten in under the, under the wire. Like that was okay. I painted my nails using a, it was like the same color. It was this like particular Essie color called mint candy apple. But like, there were two versions of it that existed. And so like I had to find the right one. And, but it was, it was from her, from my girlfriend's then girlfriend's, um, nail polish. And that was okay. Um, I had floated to her maybe a year before, um, that maybe I might like to try on a dress. And that was like very clearly like, no, that wasn't going to happen. It like, there was a brief crisis in the relationship. We were like in different places at the time. And so like, I very quickly traveled to see her and like righted the ship. And it was just like, okay, this is like, and again, the rationale was like, this is upsetting to her and you make compromises in a relationship. And this is the good boyfriend thing to do is I'm just going to put it in a drawer and not worry about it. Um, and I had made peace with that. It wasn't terrible. Um, so we broke up and I was like, okay, well maybe I could try on lipstick or maybe I could try on a dress and was like sort of thinking about this. Um, and a day or two later, she came back to the apartment to pick up her stuff because she was going to move to an Airbnb for the rest of the summer. She was doing an internship in the city. Um, so she didn't have like a, a, a lease or anything. And we sort of cemented the breakup. Like, I think there was like a, she came back with kind of a, a bit of a, she was like kind of in a panic. Like, is this really a good idea? Like, are you, and I, one of the things I said was like, you know, I think this gender stuff is like, it has been a thing that I has been in the back of my mind and like, you know, just being broken up for a couple of days that like, I've thought about it a lot. And like, that's really important. And like, you don't want that. And so like, the, like, it's, I don't want to get back together. Like, um, and that made sense to her and that we, you know, we sort of agreed. And, um, and then she said to me, um, do you want to try on some of my clothes? which I had been, you know, on some level waiting for her to ask me for years. And so I did. Um, 
in this little apartment. Um, we were sort of, it was like we were packing her clothes up and as we packed them up, she would find something and say, oh, try this on. Um, and it was incredibly exciting. I have some pictures from that day. And um, I don't think I cried. Um, I was not estrogen yet, of course, so I didn't have easy access to tears, but um, but it was it was very emotional. And um, it, for both of us, like we knew, we both knew it was like what was happening was a really big deal. And um, and then so she gave me a couple of things. She lent she not lent. She just gave me um, like a a, a, a a Brandy Melville dress and this like skirt, um, sort of unusual skirt. That was like kind of shorter in the front and longer in the back, um, and a, sh a, a a couple shirts maybe, um, I think a single pair of underwear, um, and I had never tried on. I don't think I had ever tried on women's clothes. I I think I had I had probably worn things in the context of a play maybe once before, but, um, I had thought about trying on her clothes without saying anything to her, but I never did. Um, and it was, um, it was incredible. And I was so happy. It's like the happiest that, that month is like the happiest I've ever been. I had taken a, a class in trans studies like a year before and so I had all of like the intellectual architecture for understanding what was going on. I didn't have, you know, I think some people have experiences where they're like, oh, something's up, but like I do, you know, might not even know the word transgender or my, you know, like some people come to it differently, but I had like all of the groundwork laid. I just sort of had to like flip the switch and, um, and it was, uh, it was the best month of my life. It was like, um, I told people at the time, it's like, I've met someone. It was like infatuation. It was like, like crushing hard on myself. And it was summer and I didn't have any obligations. And so I was just, uh, I was just going to, the store and buying clothes and I was telling all of my friends or no, I mean, not even just friends. I was telling people that I, you know, hadn't talked to in years because it was so exciting to just like tell someone that I was like, who else can I tell? Um, and I, uh, and just doing, you know, like, got a purse at like Kmart um, because I wanted to have a purse for something. And so I, I, like I had an event, I had something that day I was doing, someone I was meeting. And so I just went and got a purse at Kmart and I um, was wearing this like deep matte purple lipstick, which in retrospect, I'm like, I'm, I'm like a little, in retrospect, I feel like a little embarrassed about, like it was, it was, you know, like I didn't, 
it was like a month of being trans, not being trans. It was a month of being a woman and not having dysphoria. And then like at some point the dysphoria started and has only gotten worse in my experience. Um, so like, you know, it's like, it was like, I was like, it was like having a crush for like a month and like now I'm like unhappily married to myself. Um, <laughs> and you know, every so often contemplate divorce. Uh, but I didn't have, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have any insecurity about my, my body. I didn't have any insecurity about, like I got, you know, I, I read that, you know, the, the kind of breast forms I wanted to use. So I got like new bras, those like nude silicone sort of chicken cut cutlet looking things that stick to you. And you like put them on like the outside. Uh, like you kind of, you don't put them like where your boobs are going to be. You put them kind of like farther out and then they, they like you stretch them so that they meet in the middle and it kind of like creates a cleavage where there isn't any. And I got like an A cup and a B cup because I had read someone had done this. And so it was like, I would put on the A cup and then I'd put the B cup over that. And then I would wear the bra that I had gotten. Um, in fact, the day I got the, the day, like I ordered them on Amazon, they came the day that I got them. I had both dinner with my mother scheduled and a Tinder date. And so I went to the American Eagle in Union Square, which is just a short walk from my apartment at the time. And, but that like the, 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 the cutlets, the breast forms didn't come until like, I don't know, an hour and a half before I was supposed to see my mother. So it was like a time crunch. So I go very quickly to American Eagle in Union Square. Um, dressed in, you know, in, in like my dress. Um, and I, uh, get a bra. I go into the changing, like, you know, an airy bra. I go into the changing room. I put on the, the breast forms. I put on the bra. Um, I put on a dress, check that it all makes good. It makes sense. And then I, take off the breast forms, take off the bra, take off the dress, put on the boy clothes that I have in my bag, come out of the dressing room dressed as a boy, buy the bra for presumably my girlfriend, um, get in a, in a, like an Uber and go have dinner with my mother who happened to be in the city for some reason. So it was a sort of last minute thing. And so I go have dinner with my mother and my sister, um, as a boy with, um, with my bra and my breast forms in my bag at dinner. And then dinner is over and I rush back to my apartment and I put everything on and I put on the dress that I've got. And I go and have this date. This is a crazy, crazy day. Um, 
and had sex for the first time as a woman um, that night, which was uh, which was completely incredible. Um, and that was that day. And I went to a went to the date was like a an open mic, or it was like comedy at Blue Stockings. Um, some of which was not good and some of which was good. And now one of the people from the, one of the comedians I saw at that Blue Stockings event, um, uh, follows me on Twitter. So that's that whole story. (laughs) Um, how long ago did you say that was? That was, that was, uh, that was the summer of 2016. Okay. So, uh, you, you're at Duke, you applied to NYU, you came here, and then two years in? Two years in, two okay. years in. You were in a PhD program at NYU, the same one you're in now? Yes, I was at the, a PhD program in comparative literature at NYU, where I am now. I kept th- reading theory, I imagine. I kept reading theory, I got very fed up with my department very quickly, and I started looking, because the department is uh, the comp at NYU, um, the troubled comparative literature department at New York University uh, is is an extremely Derridian um, has really indentured itself to some dying arts, I think, um, and really doesn't have like a cultural studies sort of wing to it, and 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 doesn't even really have much in the way of, like, feminism or queer theory. There's, like, some Marxism, but... Uh, and so I very quickly started looking elsewhere to... So, the, you know, the... the, the um, NYU is part of a... As a consortium for graduate students, you can take classes at other, other institutions in the city, and so I took a class with Saidiya Hartman at Columbia, and I took that trans class with Paisley Curra at CUNY, um, Paisley is now a dear friend. Um, I, I, t- I took several classes at CUNY, actually. Um, I took a class at the New School. So I was, like, very quickly fleeing that department. Um, and then, uh, and then transitioned. And... Again, it was during the summer, so it was easy. Like, I didn't have to, like... It wasn't a worry about, like, oh, we're in the middle of the semester, and I've been going to this class, and now I'm suddenly going to show up looking different. It was... There was time to sort of, like, email people and let them know that something was up. Like, you know, all of the other people in the program that I knew already knew by that point, um, or most of them anyway. And, uh, like, I could let my professors know before I actually had class. Um, I sort of soft peddled things initially. So my, my, my given name was Andrew and I never went by Andrew. I went by Andy and right at the beginning of transition, I was going by Andy, but just with an I, which I think was in, in retrospect was just kind of like a concession, just like to make things easier for people. Um, and I said, well, I'll be Andrea professionally, like in my publications, um, and then quickly it turned out I liked Andrea much more. 
I still regret it, actually. I mean, I think I think Andrea is a good name. I'm I'm glad to have Andrea, but like I I know that I I don't have it as a result of having really considered. Like I never I was never like oh should I name myself whatever June Zoe, you know all of the like Claire. Like I I never I never like had a moment where I was just like well if I could have any name what name would I want. Um, which I, which I, I have regret about. I'm, I'm glad that my name is what it is now. Um, but I wish I had, I wish I had, uh, I wish I'd considered it at the, at the time. Um, I mean, it makes things easy to have the same initials and everything. I probably would have kept the same initials in any case, but... Are your middle name and last name um, given? Yes. Um, so Long is actually... Uh, I think it's... it's uh, m- My name is... My name and then my face, I think, produces a certain amount of, like, kind of ethnic confusion. Um, Chu is a Chinese surname. My grandfather on my father's side was from Shanghai. Um, or was, he was, he, yeah, basically from China. He was born in Chengdu, um, and came over my, my grandparents, um, or my, my great grandfather. I'll actually give you the quick little story, which is, so my great grandfather was born in like a village outside of Shanghai, um, in 18, or in, in 1908 comes via a a nascent exchange program to Harvard is one of the first uh, Chinese exchange students at Harvard is one of the first is one of two of the first foreign admittees into the Harvard Business School in 1911 at he was like president of the Chinese Students Association Uh, he met my great grandmother so his name was was uh Zhu uh, Tingqi and her her name was Hu Binxia and she um, she was at Radcliffe which I think was 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 at the time the sister school to a, an all male Harvard and she was known as the Portia of Cambridge because of how many suitors she had Portia like from um, uh, 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 Merchant of Venice uh, the Shakespeare. And, uh, so they met, she was also Chinese. They met at Harvard or they met in Cambridge, um, and then went back to China and he got some kind of cushy job working for the nationalist government. Um, he was minister of salt, um, and worked for Chiang Kai-shek's government for, you know, such and such years. Um, and then the communists won, and uh, and so they got out. So it's like so. My shameful past is that my my the Chinese side of my family is nationalists. <laughs> um, so we so I think they briefly went to uh, they briefly went to to Taiwan and then came to uh, came to the U.S. via New York. Um, I don't know whether it was legal or not, actually. Like, I, I, some version... So that was 1949, 
1950, um, because the communists uh, take power in 1949, um, some version of the Chinese Exclusion Act was still in effect. So I don't know. Um, I'm sure there were not a small number of nationalist refugees at the time. But anyway, um, that's the Chinese side of the family. And there, that was your father's parents. This is my. That was my father's grandparents. Grandparents. Okay. So this is my great grandfather and great grandmother. My grandfather uh, comes to the U.S. I think separately from them because he had been in college at Shanghai, and then he goes to Baylor. A mystery benefactor whom he would later meet pays for him to go to Baylor University. He has a. Um, he is not a Christian, but his, uh, well, I should say my, his, his actual mother was by this time dead. And so he had a stepmother and she was Christian, but he was not Christian. He's at Baylor, which is a Christian university. He likes going to church because he likes the music. And then one night in the dorm room, um, uh, uh, someone, a, a, a boy in the dorm room has a seizure, a really frightening seizure. And my grandfather falls to his knees and prays and the seizure stops. And so he converts. And that's like, so I think it might, I mean, my read on it now is like, you know, a, like quote unquote scholar is that it was like provided a way for him. Like it, he assimilated sort of via Christianity and um, Christianity sort of took the place of uh, like, uh, a sense of loyalty to Chinese culture. Um, so that's my father's father, and he would meet my grandmother in um, in Brooklyn, I think. He was working at a at a hospital. He was a doctor, and she was a nurse. She's like some white lady from New Jersey, which, like, I have no idea about. Like, what was it like for? this white woman to marry this Chinese guy, 13 years her senior. I have no idea what her family thought. Um, and then they became missionaries to Korea, which I assume was because they couldn't become missionaries to China at the time, because pre Gaiga Kaifang. And, um, and so the Christianity thing. So like my father, who is half Chinese, was born on a, Christian mission in Korea. Um, so that is all the Chinese side of the family. It like translated to very little in terms of my own experience growing up. Like, I mean, my father is a banana and I'm, it meant like what, like I knew what a rice cooker was. Um, but evidently some white people grow up and they don't have rice cookers, which I guess is, was always weird to me. Um, and like, and it meant that I had an interest, which I pursued. So like I took Chinese in college, I got a minor in Chinese in college. Um, I am like the, probably the, the least look, the least Chinese looking person of my siblings. I have three younger siblings. My sister is, is very dark. Um, uh, I think she often gets mistaken for Latina, but she's like very, she's clearly not white. Um, but I just look white. Occasionally mixed, other mixed people can tell. 
but I think I just look like a white girl. And in, in practice, I'm a white. I mean, I, what I say is like, I'm a white Asian American. Um, the way that you can be like a white Jew. I think like that it's a, it's a kind of, um, it's like a species of whiteness at this point. Um, Long, but the, the reason, I think the reason it looks like I'm more Chinese than I am is because Long looks like it is Chinese, but is not. Long is, um, is a, a British surname. It's my, my mother's mother's maiden name, um, which I was given for some reason. And so Andrea Long Chu is, uh, sounds like, uh, Long, like, I mean, I, occasionally people think that my last name is Long Chu, like that's some sort of, that's like my Chinese surname. Um, but no, it's all a, it's all a trick and a lie. <laughs> but I never changed it. I never thought about changing my middle name. Um, cause I always liked it because it was the basis for a very, um, a very, uh, entertaining joke as a kid, which was to ask people who did not know, I can't do this joke anymore because I'm a, I'm like a public figure or whatever. And my, my name is, it's part of my name, but, um, I could ask someone who did not know what my middle name was, Hey, guess my middle name. And they would say, I can't just guess your middle name. You have to give me a hint. And I would say, well, the hint is my middle name is long. And they would be like, Bartholomew. <laughs> it was a real separate the wheat from the chaff kind of thing. Some people would get it immediately and some people would not get it. And once they had assumed that it meant the name was itself, lengthy, um, would just like, wouldn't get it. And I would say, no, my middle name is really long. <laughs> um, I just took up so much time just describing my name. It's so <laughs> exciting. The last, I should do the last bit of it, which is that all the, all the kids in my family, the, the decision was made by my parents that all the, all the boys would have New Testament names and all the girls would have Old Testament names. There, were, there was only, growing up, there was only the one girl. And so it was, the boys were Andrew, Timothy, and Silas, and the girl was Abigail. Um, uh, so like Silas, for instance, would have been Miriam had he been a girl. So I have a, I have a New Testament name, because Andrew is one of the disciples. And of course, Andrew means manly as just like the, the sort of the, the, the insult added to injury. Um, <laughs> and, um, and of course, Andrea still does mean manly, just making it feminine doesn't mean it doesn't mean manly. <laughs> but so I have a, I have a, 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 a New Testament Greek name that means man. I, um, so the last couple of years, uh, there's been both a growth of trans, like media attention and trans political and popular cultural attention, but also a sort of development in, uh, trans critical writing, um, of which you're a part. And I, I just like towards the end of our interview, just want to hear your thoughts a little bit about sort of the development of trans studies or thought coming out of trans communities at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, 
And I transitioned sort of like, I mean, what, what you're talking about is like the thing we call like with disdain, the tipping point. Um, and, uh, I came out after that, you know, I came out into that more or less. I mean, when did Caitlyn Jenner come out? It wasn't, I think Caitlyn and I were not that far apart, I think in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, I think it was just a couple months. Wasn't she 2016? I don't know. Um, and so I like, I, and I had taken this trans studies class. I had been very, uh, unhappy with that class. I remember, uh, not because of Paisley whom I adore, but, um, because it, there tended to be trans people tend to be good examples of something in of someone's gender theory is sort of like the the traditional role of the of the figure of the trans person since like the 90s um so you know like all the paris is burning stuff and um and all of that was very dissatisfying and then the other problem was and of course i at the time thought i was a cis person taking the class um but most of the people in the class were cis and so no one wanted to say anything Everyone wanted to just be like a good ally. Um, and it just leads, uh, good allyship leads to bad scholarship. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek, but it, 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 like, there was clearly like a kind of moral orthodoxy that, that could be, um, that could be observed if one wanted to. And, and that was always very unappealing to me. So I came out and, um, and, you know, after this initial heady phase was like, Oh, like this sucks. Um, this is like, I, like I hate being trans. Um, I have no idea why I would have pride about this. I have no idea why I would have, like love for this. Um, and I was, uh, and it bothered me that like, I couldn't find that kind of discourse online or in, you know, I mean, there's, first of all, just like not that many nonfiction books that are not memoir written by trans women. I mean, like, I don't even know. Um, it's a, it's a small number. And most of those are very, you know, like Whipping Girl or whatever is, um, Julia Serrano's book is like very, like, um, it's very good politics. Like, it, you know, it's setting, like, these are the terms and these are the, um, you know, this is, this is how it works. And, um, there's a lot of, I think, you know, um, there's still a lot of like proving to other people that you're real and proving that this is like a legitimate thing. And, and that I think, as I was saying before, I think that that can, can lead to a kind of respectability pro uh, politics, um, even among those who would find that problematic. Um, and I wanted like a space for, um, I wanted a space for talking about dysphoria. 
I wanted a space for talking about, um, or have come to want a space for talking about, you know, being suicidal, um, you know, it's not a, um, and for talking about like divisions and distinctions in like within the trans community, like I'm, um, you know, like I can, I can totally be like a, like transsexual separatist on some days. Like I'm just like, it's very frustrating to me to have, um, a sort of homogenous wash over all different kinds of, uh, whatever we call so-called gender variants or something. I get frustrated, um, that I don't have a discourse for me. Um, and I, you know, I, I think everyone experiences that, but, um, so like, for instance, I say like, there are some people who are trans because they want to be trans. And there are some people who are trans because they don't want to be trans. Um, that's, 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 those are wildly different experiences. And of course, that's still a generalization. And of course, those two positions are not mutually exclusive. Um, and there's like always more complication to be done. But um, there are real like divisions, I think, in, um, in the ways that different trans people experience the world. And there's real, um, and there's all of these pieties about like, about gender identity, about how gender is a spectrum, about how gender is socially constructed, about like no none of these things mean anything. Like they don't they don't refer to anything. They're just like pockets of feeling that reassure you that you belong to the correct political community. They're not like actual uh uh developed positions, even if at one time they were. Um And so, I don't know, I, I, at some point, developed a very strong urge to, um, to argue with other trans people, or especially to be argued with. Um, I, 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 uh, crave quality disagreement. Um, and, uh, and on liking women, this piece in N plus one, um, came out of, uh, in part out of that desire, a desire to, um, state something, uh, strongly, provocatively, and in a way that would like force confrontation. Um, not even because I was right and other people were wrong, though, of course I am right. Um, but just because like, the as a as a way to get out of like the stultifying discourses of uh positivity and validation and affirmation and um these kind of crusted over uh activist discourses that you'll find online on twitter or on tumblr um I just really wanted, I mean, and I think this is like a part of like, you know, the, uh, 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 you know, maybe the first 
step is dignity or something like that. But, um, part of, part of affording trans people full humanity means, um, means that there has to be space for them to be like terrible to each other. <laughs> Not just terrible in bad ways, but like for, you know, that like part of being like the, the idea that being trans would commit you to a particular ideological position or ought to commit you to a particular ideological position um, is ridiculous. And, and like, is a, a, a sort of advanced form of dehumanization. Um, so I found myself really, uh, really dissatisfied with what existed. And I, um, and so I, I wrote something about it and continue to write things about it. Um, where do you hope that will lead? Like breaking out of the stagnant, limited trans discourse like where could it open on to i'd like there to be um i mean i think uh, it depends on sort of what uh what kind of field we're talking about if we're talking about like in an academic context like there's there's a a, a new theory of gender there's like new theories that, like we d we don't actually I'm like checking myself to see if this is true. I don't think we've had a meaningfully different theory of gender since Butler. I mean, I don't know. I don't know who that would be. Um, not that everyone is like a, a doctrinaire performativity person, but like that there are, there are some basic parts of that that have become something you assume. I don't know. I think, I think that we, um, I would like to see, uh, uh, I would like to see some essentialisms again. I think there are some, um, not, not in the sense of like, oh, I think we should be biological, biological determinists or something. Um, but, uh, I think there are trans experiences. I think there is really like a different theory of gender that does not exist yet. Um, which is not the one that we have, um, or probably several different theories, um, that could come out of trans experience, um, and be theorized by trans people. And like, I think that is starting. Um, but, uh, but that really will require uh, breaking with um, what has, in some cases, become um, uh, uh, academic um, uh, has become just like a basic assumption. I think it has to. I think um, there's there's really space for doing something new. Um, that's in like an academic context. Um, I'm really interested, like in a in a more popular frame. Um, I don't know. I just want to see trans people not 
doing stuff that has to do with gender or that has so directly to do with their being trans. Like the, you know, so, okay. So I haven't watched Pose, um, but I am like totally exhausted by the idea of having to watch Pose, which of course I will have to eventually, um, because it just looks so like, it looks so woke and so, um, just like there's like a kind of unbearable performance of, of virtue and sentimentality from what I can tell. I'm just like talking out of my ass cause I haven't seen it, but that's what it looks like to me. Um, and part of my frustration with that is like, okay, so it was like, whatever, Ryan Murphy has a show and it's got like, whatever, five main cast trans characters or something. It's like the most trans people that you ever had in a television show. Um, and it's like, of course it does, because it's about the ball scene. And like, that, like, not that like the ball scene is not a real thing or that like no one should make TV shows about it, but it's kind of like, I don't know, why couldn't the first show with a bunch of trans people have been about like, I don't know, space cowboys or something. Like, it just kind of feels like, yeah, well, like, Orange is the New Black had a lot of lesbians, but you literally had to go to prison to find them, you know? Like, it just, it it feels like a, a kind of wedging trans people into a place of needing to be sort of, like, inspiring pioneers in gender difference or something, um, which is a, a, a maybe, in some cases, very flattering form of tokenism, but... Um, and again, I'm being unfair to Pose, probably, but um, I would like to see um, I would like to see trans people not doing that, not having to like constantly be kind of uh, educational figures for um, how gender doesn't, you know, gender is not what you thought it was. Uh, or sex isn't what you thought it was. Uh, it's exhausting and it's boring. And there's just like so much else that could happen. And so many other things about being trans that would be more interesting to uh, write or make TV shows or make you know, I don't know, whatever, podcast, like, th there's so much other, so many other kinds of cultural production that could come out of being trans, um, than this sort of, you know, fabulousness, um, you know, make a show about, about, like, I don't know, make like, make like a dark sci-fi show about hormones or something. Like, I would love that shit, you know? But now I'm just like making up, making up things I would like to see in the world. What, um, what has your personal life been like the last couple of years? Um, I, uh, I have a girlfriend. We live together. Um... She's, uh, wonderful, um, cis woman. Um, she's also in my program. Um, it's, 
it's funny, you know, I, I have very, like, I, I have an enormous affection for Butch Femme that I think probably predated transition, but, um, but that, that is really abiding now. Um, and, and she's not like a crazy butch, like uh, she's, you know, she has long hair. She, um, she doesn't wear makeup. It, it's not like a, like, I think she's probably like actually butch or extremely soft butch or something. But, um, but butch femme is like a sort of relational form, not just in terms of like, do you button your, your shirt all the way to the top? Um, and so like, you know, um, so we will both refer to her as my boyfriend. We will refer to like, we will like talk about the division of household labor in terms of, of a, of a, of a gender division of labor in a way that like, I find extremely pleasing. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's like a, that's a boyfriend task. Um, and like I cook and, um, and she does the dishes and, um, and I love all of that. Like, it's just heterosexuality is so much better when there aren't any men in the equation. Um, this is a, a, a wonderful secret of lesbianism. Um, and, uh, so that's been, uh, that has been like a joy sort of getting to explore, um, Butch Femme, uh, She has also been, um, there are, there are, uh, lots of wonderful things about my girlfriend, but, um, she has just like taken the wheel in terms of surgery prep. Um, so, you know, a year ago she was researching surgeons and then sent me a whole, like this. It was like a whole document that she sent me, um, not just researching surgeons in New York, but like, what are your options What in the United States? Here are five surgeons. Here's a bunch of information about them. Like she, her, her way of, um, I mean, it was incredible because I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, if I thought about, I knew I wanted to get bottom surgery, but I couldn't deal with trying to figure out how to make it happen. It was like way too um, anxiety provoking. And so she just did it. And, um, and then has subsequently like her way of managing, I think her own anxiety about like, um, about it is to, um, is again, this sort of, uh, a, a, a friend of mine called her, um, uh, an alpha caretaker. Um, so, you know, she, there's like a, on our like shared Google calendar, there's like a whole subset of, of events that are all like surgery related. And like, I don't even know when like I have pre-op and post-op appointments and she, like, she's just like totally taken care of as much of it as she possibly can. Um, and it is just like the, like one of the most, if not the most wonderful thing anyone has ever done for me. Um, just, just incredible. Um, and there's a whole, uh, there's a whole 
squad of friends who have been enlisted to sort of keep me company in in the in when I'm recovering um, in the weeks right after surgery. And she's you know she's organizing all of that. I'm there's I know there's things that will happen that I don't know about yet. There's like um. It's just like someone planning like the best surprise birthday party you could ever have. Um, and I'm really, you know, uh, uh, surgeries in four weeks, I have to like, you know, get my shit together, just, you know, finish up some projects so that I can kind of coast into surgery and then not have to worry about stuff, you know, work, uh, work and writing after, um, in, in, you know, the month or two after. And so it's just, I don't know, it feels like, cause it's, it's basically going to become my, it will be like my winter vacation. Cause we're in November right now. It'll be at the very end of November. And then like, you know, like the holidays is just going to be me like in bed, um, recovering from surgery and just like chilling, um, you know, snow outside, Christmas tree up in the house. Um, yeah, so things are really great. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky. Anything else you would like to include in this interview? Mm -hmm. uh, no. Coming to mind. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure.